welcome to Heroes of Brand Protection podcast episode 20. I'm your host, Daniel Shapiro, Vice President of Brand Relations at Redpoints, the world's fastest growing brand protection solution with a mission to make the internet safer for both brands and consumers. In this podcast, we will share stories and industry insights from some of the leading experts in brand protection and anti-counterfeiting from many different industries. We are very happy you could join us today, and please check out all of our episodes on www.redpoints.com forward slash podcast. Today, we are thrilled to be speaking with Michael Lewis, Vice President, IP Security and Protection at Entertainment Software Association, also known as ESA. When Michael was a young man, he wanted to become an engineer. He later realized one of his passions was to become a professional DJ. His parents, although, weren't too fond of the idea of a professional DJ. He kept on working, and he soon realized there was space in the entertainment industry and intellectual property, and therefore he decided to become an entertainment lawyer. He finished his studies shortly after 9-11, which unfortunately was a crash in the legal market. However, he got a job at a firm that helped him become the kind of IP expert he is today. Well, Michael, thank you for joining us. We're thrilled to have you here today with our podcast. Thank you for inviting me. And I think before we get going into our podcast to learn a little bit more about you, I thought maybe I'd clear up one thing. Uh, Do you think that pineapple uh, should be on pizza or prohibited to ever be on pizza? Oh, uh, no question. Prohibited. So (laughs) I am, uh, I'm from Queens, New York. Growing up, pizza was you know, a really staple of, uh, of, of my food, uh, and absolutely no pineapples on pizza. Yeah. Plus I think it would get in the way when you fold it, which would, you know, be, wouldn't be right either. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) So, so maybe when we think about getting into the, uh, nitty gritty about your story, Michael, tell us, what did you want to be when you grew up? What were you thinking you'd do? Yeah. So that, that's a great question. So, you know, I grew up, um, you know, both my parents were, were blue collar workers. My father was a steam fitter. Uh, so he was, uh, he was a union guy and he would go into buildings and weld pipes that would deliver air conditioning and refrigeration to buildings in Manhattan and the five boroughs and the like. So I learned early on, um, you know, what the trades were all about. I realized in the winter, my father was freezing because they were installing the pipes. In the summer, he was drenched in sweat coming home because there was no AC. So I kind of knew what I didn't want to do. Uh, So I had a couple of cousins that were going to school to be engineers. And I was like, all right, well, that sounds like something that is not going to give me too much uh, heartache from my parents. And it sounds like a great profession. So um, growing up, I wanted to be an engineer. Awesome. And so uh, when was the pivot? So music was always a a big part uh, of my life. And in high school, I started toying around with, you know, with some turntables and vinyl. And I started to really become a fan of music and a fan of the music industry. And that's sort of where entertainment law kind of, you know, started to become an option. But before it became an option, I remember uh, I went to Howard University in Washington, D.C., the Mecca, and I was a DJ, you know, DJ in college parties my first couple of years in school. 
So I thought I knew what I wanted to do, right? I'm going to be a professional DJ. So I came home and I was like, Ma, I figured it out. I want to be a DJ. And my mother shut that down <laughs> so quick. She was like, uh, if you want to go back to school, that's not what you're going to do. So I remember watching one of my uh, favorite uh, groups growing up, Public Enemy, and the lead singer was Chuck D. And he was saying that, hey, listen, we've got tons of artists. You know, we've got tons of musicians. What we don't have are people to help the artists through their careers and make sure that they become prosperous. We need lawyers. We need people in management. We need accountants. And then that's for me where um, the light bulb shined and, and turned on. It's like, okay, you know what? I think, you know, being an entertainment lawyer and working within the music industry and, and in particular with copyright, that would be something that number one was certainly an interesting field for me that something I had passion about. And two, uh, it would pass the sniff test of my parents in terms of making sure that I can move ahead with my college career. Yeah. Um, you know, I was thinking about what you were talking about this profession. I mean, at the time when you, you heard that from Public Enemy uh, and that statement, did you have a, a strong awareness of copyright and piracy as it relates to the music industry? Or was that, I mean, is that something you were thinking about? Or, yeah, you'd heard it, but you hadn't really thought much about it. So I think two things stick out in my mind based on that question. One You've always heard stories about artists who were wildly successful, but ended up, you know, broke uh, because they just did not manage their affairs properly. And then the second piece was, you know, growing up, I remember, you know, going to Jamaica Avenue in Queens and going shopping and you would see bootleg copies of CDs. So this is pre-Napster, right? So, you know, that sort of introduced me to, and I remember naively being like, hey, that's only $3. I'm going to get that. Why, like, why would I go to Sam Goody and pay $12, $15 for a CD when my guy on the corner right here is selling it for five bucks and then taking it home and playing it? Then you started to understand like, wait a minute, somebody's cooking in the background. Right in the middle of the song, you hear dinner's ready. <laughs> <laughs> so that sort of, gave me an understanding about, you know, illegal copies of, of music and, you know, those sorts of things not making their way back to artists. And I think I saw consequences of that. You know, my, some of my favorite artists never got to a second, a second album because their first album sales didn't do well, but in the street it did well, but not at retail. Right, right. So then where did you end up uh, going to law school? So I stayed local, uh, well, local to D.C. anyway, and um, went to Catholic University. And I realized really quickly that intellectual property was something that I wanted to uh, concentrate in. But at Catholic, at the time, there were three IP classes, uh, and, that, and that was it. So, and I think that was for most law schools at that time. So what I ended up doing from there was I started looking at schools that had a more robust intellectual property curriculum. And then there was um, Benjamin Cardozo uh, School in New York, and they had at least seven or eight IP classes. And I was like, wow, I've got to find myself there. So during my third year of law school, I did a visiting student program at Benjamin Cardozo, and I enjoyed it so much 
that I ended up graduating from Catholic with my law degree, but then enrolling in Cardozo for an LLM in intellectual property. So um, I stayed an additional six months after that or an extra semester to earn that law degree because I had taken so many classes in my last year that I was ahead of the game going into my LLM program. So then where did you land out of school? Did you end up in a firm or did you go, where did you end up heading from a trajectory perspective? So I graduated from my, with my LLM in December of 2001 which was right after September 11th happened. Oh, sure. So I'm in New York and the legal market just crashed. You know, job opportunities were slim pickings at the time. And I was just looking to be gainfully employed. So I found a firm that did insurance defense work. And again, it wasn't necessarily in my field of choice. Uh, And one of the things that immediately surprised me was after I got my offer, uh, the partner was like, hey, go down to the Queens County Courthouse on your first day of work and look for a guy named Jay. He's going to show you the ropes. And I was like, well, what what kind of firm just puts you in a courtroom on day one? But that was, you know, it sort of, that was a microcosm of my general experience at this firm, which was Monday through Thursday, I was in, you know, local courts and county courts, civil courts, state Supreme Court of New York, you know, getting all kinds of experience that I think Colleagues that went to bigger firms were, you know, stuck in a, you know, a windowless closet doing document review. Uh, so I learned from that experience and, and some other experiences that you have to take advantage of your opportunities when you when you have them and the skills that you attain in a job that may not be related to your passion is definitely going to help you get to your career path that you wanted to um, engage in. That that's a good story. And and who who was Jay, by the way? What was Jay? Was he another attorney? Jay was a seasoned, grizzled attorney who was like everybody knew Jay. Like Jay would walk into the courtroom, the bailiff would be like, Hey, what's going on, Jay? The clerk would be like, Hey Jay, you catch the Mets game last night. So this guy was he was the mayor of New York City courts, right? So couldn't find a better person to teach me that sometimes relationships can be more beneficial than actually knowing the law. Yeah, those are some really great skills you picked up. That's awesome. It's a good lesson for all of young people, for sure. Um, For those who are listening to us today, maybe you could uh, share a little bit of information about the Entertainment Software Association to help people understand a little bit more about your company, uh, your journey, the company's journey, where you operate, and how you operate. Sure. ESA, uh, the Entertainment Software Association, is the trade association that represents the video game industry. So trade associations normally advocate um, or are the voice for a particular industry, um, whether it's before federal um, entities, executive branch, uh, legislative branch, judicial branch, or on um, state advocacy as well, going to various state houses uh, around the country and advocating for uh, bills, laws, tax breaks, exemptions, and, and, and things of that nature. So ESA has a, a policy shop, uh, but it also has an enforcement shop. And this is what sort of attracted me to ESA, was that you had the opportunity to work on behalf of the wider industry, not just a company, 
but a wider industry of um, you know of of really interesting and dynamic uh, companies with the goal of making sure that you help protect and enforce the member's IP. And I think my career up to that point, I had you know a really interesting career in government, um, a little bit in the private sector as well. But I was uh, certainly looking for the challenge of working for a larger industry in the IP space. And ESA is based in? Uh, Washington, D.C. Right. And, and so, and do you have offices in other countries? Or are you specifically focused on U.S. entertainment software companies? Or are you helping uh, groups all over the globe? We are U.S.-based trade association. So all of our members are, um, you know, either U.S. Uh, specific companies, corporations, or entities, or, you know, the f- local entity of a global uh, sort of uh, company and the like. So uh, that's sort of who we represent. And for the most part, we're representing U.S. interests. But when it comes to IP, especially enforcement of IP, uh, a lot of that work is global. And how would you describe sort of the Entertainment Software Association, like in in one sentence, or as you, you know, boil it down, the, the goal of Entertainment Software Association is to? Is to be the voice of the video game industry. And in terms of my particular role, so the group that I lead is, within the Entertainment Software Association is the Intellectual Property Protection and Security Group. And uh, as you as you manage that function inside the company, are you launching you know, legal action against the offenders uh, or um, I suppose raids if there was physical property available to, is that something you're responsible for? Yes. So um, from my perspective, you try to use every tool in your tool belt to, um, you know, eliminate the issue on behalf of your membership. And whether that is legal tools or, um, you know, using your persuasion uh, to make sure that you know counterfeiters and and other infringers stop doing what what they're doing, and I think the video game industry has a really interesting arc when it comes to the you know infringement uh, infringement issues. So I would say you know 20 years ago, right, going back um, to early 2000s, 80% of all video game sales were physical, right physical consoles with physical cartridges that, um, you know, went into consoles in order for you to play. And then 20% digital. You know, today, that stat has flipped itself on its head, whereas 80% of all sales are digital and, you know, 20% are physical. So 20 years ago, the the, the major issues were counterfeit uh, cartridges being distributed in, you know, um, uh, flea markets and 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 other points of sale, and now you've got a digital uh, distribution of unauthorized intellectual property of members, uh, you know, via various internet uh, tools and protocols. Yeah. So that that requires um, you know a a global kind of approach to um, you know to to stopping that kind of activity. Yeah, you know, a whole nother strategy, right? That transition from counterfeit to piracy and, and the challenges that brings. When, when you think about the 
sort of the risk associated with, you know, pirated content from your point of view and from consumers point of view, how do you, what do you, what do you see for tomorrow? Like what's the solution or what's part of the solution? So I think that the interesting part of the evolution of infringement within the video game industry is, you know, obviously physical to digital, but now in the digital world, what's happening is that you've got all these different kinds of delivery mechanisms of games to consumer, right? So our members have really put um, a premium on delivering content to uh, consumers how they, you know, how and when they want it. So that means going to an, an, an eShop and buying a digital download of a game and downloading it, creating a free game, right? Where you can go and download an app or download a game for free. And then uh, consumers can purchase items within the game, right? Boards, levels, items that help your character get through the game and the like. Um, so all these things you know, tend to require uh, different approaches when it comes to infringement. So when you talk about, um, you know, full copies of games, uh, there is different avenues for the video game industry to try to enforce uh, and remove those copies, right? So cyber lockers, uh, you know, these um, particular, uh, you know, tools uh, that we all use, uh, cloud-based storage tools, um, you know, a lot, a lot of the times people will uh, rip a game, uh, put it in the cloud, and then distribute a link to others to, to download. And, you know, we actively go after or send DMCA notices to the CyberLocker itself and then ask Google to remove those links from its search engine uh, so people can't get access uh, to the content itself. So there are a, a lot of different, um, you know, techniques and avenues to approach, um, you know, this being just one of them when you're dealing with full copies of games. Yeah, in, in, interesting challenge, you know, and you think about all those components or to your point, the, the different things you can add to a game, right? That's not just the game, it's all those components. Certainly a challenge. Um, since COVID and more and more people sort of were homebound, I suppose there was a spike in the gaming and the, on all that challenging your side. Um, one of the things we've seen is people sharing credentials, you know, where maybe games allow two users or two people to use. Are you seeing any of that credential sharing as, as a function of sort of a, again, another challenge yet another challenge in the gaming space? Absolutely. Talking about all these different aspects of how games are delivered to, to the consumer. One of the new models is, you know, streaming services that people can stream games directly to their uh, PC, to their console and their and the like, you know, similar to Netflix, Disney Plus and, and all the other proliferation of streaming platforms that are out there. So we are now seeing the same kinds of issues of credential sharing. Um, and it it actually it, it take it a step further. You know, people are allowed in on some video game platforms to download games, you know, with their account. So now you can have, let's say, you know, 10 games uh, on your account that are $60 a piece. So that's $600 worth of content on your console. And you can sell your credentials on platforms um, such as marketplaces and the like to third parties who can then download that content directly to their console for a fraction of the cost. So unfortunately, that opens up a whole different avenue of problems, you know, for our membership 
that we're actively fighting to address, you know, not only from the hardcore sort of, you know, enforcement and um, protection perspective, uh, but also, you know, from a policy perspective, you know, making sure that our policymakers in, in the copyright and IP space understand what those challenges are, what are some of the solutions to those challenges and the like. Yeah, it would seem that public policy, user policies, you know, user agreements have to be moving at this uh, sort of high speed as the challenges are are moving. It would seem that it's a continuous process to to manage those regulations in, in, in government where you help in D.C. as to those, as well as even game-by-game user uh, interface agreements. And, you know, I think the, the interesting thing is, you know, this requires a lot of education, not, not just to lawmakers, but also to third-party platforms like more online marketplaces where people are allowed to go and sell, you know, whatever it is that they're either making and the like. And this is where infringers go to sell the credentials and, and other items. So a lot of the time, you know, these third-party marketplaces don't necessarily recognize what's happening. So we spend a lot of time, you know, training, educating, having conversations with that ecosystem to make sure that, you know, they understand what our notices are actually saying. Like, hey, we want you to take down this individual who is selling an account. And for them, it's like, well, where's the, you know, where's the violation? Uh, How does that impact, you know, our terms of service and the like? And we end up having to research their terms of service, uh, make sure they understand where an IP violation may happen in the credential sharing world and the like. Well, that's uh, certainly fascinating. I I think uh, I wasn't sure exactly what I'd learned from you, but I I think I've learned a ton so far in our short conversation. Is there a myth you think about, you know, in your industry, uh, in the video game industry or the IP legal version of your industry that we need to debunk? Like people think that, you know, you're just a gamer with a tie or something, or what, what do people think about legal folks in the gaming industry? You know, I think in general, the industry itself um, has a perception issue where most people think that gamers are teenagers, people in their early 20s, in the basement, slamming Mountain Dews, playing all night. And, and that could not be farther from the truth. You know, the largest demographic of gamers are between 35 and 45 years old, right? Like, and quite frankly, anyone who picks up their their cell phone and downloads, uh, you know, Words With Games or any of those particular games on their phone, they're a gamer. So, you know, making sure that people understand that, you know, video games are not just for a younger generation, it's a lot wider. And that has policy implications because policymakers tend to pay more attention to their to their voting constituency. So if they think that this is just, you know, kids play and games for people that are teenagers and the like, of course there are issues that, you know, they will pay attention to, but I think it gets a a, a lot larger on their radar once they understand the scope and the amount of people that are playing games. I mean, one of the things that is always baffles my mind is that, you know, the video game industry makes more money on a yearly basis than movies and music combined. I think I just found out I'm a gamer, right? I think I'm helping the uh, process. So thanks for helping me come out. Uh, We had a a podcast uh, previous to yours, and we spoke to uh, James Larson from 
Purple Mattress, which is a really cool tech mattress that has really come on by huge volumes. And James is their uh, IP counsel there. He had a question for you. And the question was, if you had one free hour each day, what would you do with that hour? Wow. (laughs) That is a great question. I would spend that hour uh, pursuing my pursuing my passion, which is DJing. That's awesome. Um, what, what advice uh, you've given quite a bit of advice throughout uh, knowingly or unknowingly throughout this uh, podcast. But if you were speaking to a young person who maybe wanted to pursue a career similar to yours in this, in this genre, what would, what would you suggest to them? I would say two things. I would say number one, Every single job will provide you with a professional skill that will help you get to your end goal. Um, and you know, as as to me, one of my most interesting jobs was at 15 or 16 when I was working at McDonald's, right? So I was the fry guy, right? Getting, you know, fry oil, singeing my the hair on my skin and you know, mopping the floors and, and doing all of that. You know, that taught me what I did not want to do with my life. Right. So that absolutely helped me sort of focus and understand that education will take you where you want to go. So that's that's the one thing. Right. Every job has its purpose in your path towards your career. The second piece of that is follow your passion. I cannot imagine where I would be if I did not like what I was doing. It would probably you know, be a very boring existence and working for a paycheck. You know, for me, um, obviously, everyone wants to get compensated well, but for me, it's a passion. Every day, I am motivated. I am, you know, absolutely interested in opening up my computer and seeing what problem of the day that I can help solve. Um, so, you know, for me, it, and the advice I would give is figure out what your passion is in life and, you know, follow that passion. Yeah, those are two great pieces of advice. I like them both because they work work so well together. Uh, uh, Michael, it was a pleasure to have you. Your stories were great. Uh, your energy. One day, I'd actually like to hear you DJ. So if you, you know, I'm in New York a few times a year because we have an office there. I'd like to, you know, maybe get together and, and see you bring out the vinyl. I can carry stuff for you, and uh, <laughs> we can we can put something together. Sounds like a plan. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> Well, it was very interesting to learn about your journey and your insights in the brand protection space. There are two key takeaways that I wanted to share with everybody. One, it is extremely important that policymakers within the copyright and IP space understand the challenges that the video game industry is facing, such as credential sharing. And then two, every single job opportunity does provide some level of professional skill that will help people reach their end goal. Well, that's it for us today. If you like what you heard, check out our next inspiring story from another hero of brand protection. You can follow us on all of our platforms, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, as well as Twitter and LinkedIn. Make it a good day.